Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Let's. What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to the College Info Geek Podcast. I feel short right now, Martin. Good. I, you, I feel like you're taller than me at the moment. You've been toned down a notch. <laughs> Have I? Yeah. <laughs> because I'm too lazy to adjust the camera to get headroom, so I'm just like... It's a metaphor. You didn't deserve the extra height. Okay, now I feel really short. I'm going to... How's that? <laughs> Well, day two in the new studio, and um, part of me is already regretting it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm very excited for uh, when we have time to actually batch this setup, but it's I'm very heading. complicated. It's pretty complicated. Um, I'm heading to New York City this week, so we ain't got time to batch, and that's fine. Uh, so we are going to do another book analysis episode because I happened to pick up this book called The Dip by Seth Godin, which I have actually referenced in videos before, and I'm pretty sure I've referenced it even on the podcast, but I hadn't actually read it. I had read uh, maybe a synopsis, synopsis, a synopsis of it or a, bo- a blog post or something about that where he kind of explained the idea, but I have finally read the book. You read the book. It yeah. is likely that we will talk about the book for longer than it took to read the book. It didn't. Yeah, that, You know what? That's actually... <laughs> Pretty plausible. That would be within a standard deviation. What if we attempted to spend less time talking about the book than it took to read it? I don't know how long it took you to read it. It took me probably an hour and a half, I would say. Hour. Maybe an hour for you. Oh, Mr. Super Speed Reader over here. You know, I just... One hour club. Yeah, I couldn't do it. That's how I do. Uh, Before we get into it, though, I do have one announcement that I'm very excited about and very happy about. This podcast is finally on Spotify. And actually, I felt really weird because we on the last episode, we said, hey, everyone go tweet Spotify because we want to have the show yeah. on Spotify. Hey, it worked already. <laughs> before it released in the week or so before it released, uh, it actually got on Spotify. So yeah. we no longer have to petition the audience to beg for Spotify to have the podcast because now it has it. Uh, so I have gone ahead and I have put a Spotify link in the YouTube description. We have it, I believe, in the show notes now. Uh, and it is on the podcast page of our website. So yeah, there are ways to uh, get to it. But yeah, so now it's on Spotify. As always, it's on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And I think if you like recite a certain incantation within the forest, it will just oh, sort yeah. of come to you on the winds. That has always been a thing that you could do. Uh, and that's not going away. You know, those are ancient traditions. This is what we need. It is what we need. <laughs> so what do you think of this book? I thought it was a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was uh it's got a lot of stuff that's pretty reminiscent of like essentialism and the whole you can't focus on a billion things at once, so do what you're good at a lot instead of meandering about with everything else. But I actually did like that it had some stuff in there to answer the question of like if essentialism and all these other things are saying, you need to quit wasting time on all this nonsense so you can focus on your big thing. And this one 
is specifically more about when do you quit something? How do you know that it is one of the things you should quit? Because that's a pretty yeah. hard question to answer, even if you read all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is this is a question that I think every student deals with at some point, because there's the whole "Do I change my major?" question. Should yeah. I even be in school? Question. Um, I've had people who have been in internships, and it's like a month into the internship, and they're like, "This isn't for me. What do I do?" Those kind of questions are tough to answer. And you can't just say, focus on one thing. Like, that's not a clear answer to a specific question like that. Yeah. Because the question is, okay, what is the thing I should be focusing on? Is it my major or is it something else that I haven't tried yet? Or is it maybe a side project that I'm working on in my spare time? Should I quit everything to do that? Yeah. And that's that's really the question because it's like, okay, I'm struggling right now. Is it because I'm supposed to struggle or is it because I just really suck at this and mm-hmm. should do something else? Am I being lazy by looking for another solution? Am I just trying to escape the challenge? Yeah. And I would say that I think this book provided me with more clarity than I had before on those questions, but it doesn't give you the answers. Well, I don't, I don't know if any of them can give you the answer. That's pre- pretty difficult. That is it's true. very context dependent. Except for my books. Yeah. That just my books give you the answer. You can literally just follow every word. Yeah. You're rich. Yeah, the, the next book Probably. I'm writing is just The Manual for Life. Yeah. Um, you know, and when you realize that like your girlfriend's pregnant but also your dog ran away, I actually have a chapter for that. What about when your dog's pregnant but your girlfriend ran away? I have a chapter for that too. Nice. That chapter is actually before the other chapter because it turns out that's more common. Oh, that's good. <laughs> People just don't like to talk about it, but I'm <laughs> the brave one. I'm willing to step out of the shadows and bring this issue to light. Yeah. I'm willing to take the you flag in the media. You are a social warrior. I am. <laughs> Something like that. Brilliant. <laughs> All right. So I want to go through this book. Uh, I think that it, it's short enough that we can kind of go through the general outline and hit on a lot of the points that he, that he hits on here. And then uh, I have some of my own stories and thoughts. Yeah. So the main idea here behind this whole question of do we quit or do we stick with what we're doing is if you can't be the best in the world at what you're doing, then you might as well quit right now. So that's kind of like the main idea there. But best in the world is a variable definition. So I think when a lot of people hear, if you can't be the best in the world, quit right now, they're thinking, I can't be LeBron James. I can't be The Rock. I can't be... Starbucks, I should just quit right now. I like how in the book he he defined that the best in the world is the best option for your target audience that they have right now that they can afford. Yeah. So, you know, maybe this isn't the best podcast in the world, but it's the best podcast for a specific audience who gets it for free. Or I'm not the best speaker in the world, but I may be the best speaker that a specific school has the option, you know, who knows about. That's another thing. I mean, with the internet, like there's definitely more of an ability to know about people who are outside of your geographical area, but people still don't know about all the options out there. Yeah, you got to be best in the specific world you're talking about. Not literally Earth, Mm -hmm. but like this section of this city for this income class for this type of person. Yeah, exactly. Be the best in their world. Somebody wants a local web developer, let's say. You're not competing against people in other cities, you know? Yeah. Like the web development place you worked for in Des Moines, they weren't interested in hiring outside of Des Moines. Yeah, they weren't like, hiring like people from everywhere. Yeah, they could have hired somebody in Sri Lanka remote, 
and they could have been like the best web developer at a specific language, but they wanted somebody who was in the office. So I'm guessing there's better communication. Well, yeah, you're on the same time zone. They speak the same language. They're within the price point. There's all Mm -hmm. sorts of things. So it's really not literally best in the world. Yeah. So you're just trying to figure out like, what is my target market? Um, What can they afford? How do I get them to know about me? And within that circle, how do I become the best in the world? Yeah. And then he also does a little bit of a, a little bit of a demonstration of why being the best in the world is, is so good. And I liked this part because he talked about the zip distribution. Yeah. And I don't know how to pronounce that because it's Z-I-P-F. And it's that is, zip. that's a really weird consonant pair. There. No, it happens in like German. But uh, actually, I was going to go through here and just look at it. I liked that. Well, I liked number one that he provided a graph that showed just exactly why vanilla is the best ice cream flavor out there. It is a good flavor. It is a really good flavor. And all people who like chocolate, I mean, just look at the book, man. You're like outnumbered four to one almost, it seems. Yep. <laughs> and I, I'm a, I'm, I'm kind of a chocolate chip or chocolate chip cookie dough kind of guy. But I do like vanilla. And I remember going to Baskin Robbins with my mom when I was a kid, and she would always get mad that I wanted vanilla. But hey, I'm just going with the best flavor. Yep. But the, so the zip distribution, uh, or zip's law, as he as he states it here, basically shows that in many many fields, the number one or top dog gets the majority of the benefits. You're looking at my computer like it's about to burst into flames. It is. Oh, okay. I'm fine with that. Just no. I want to make sure no, that I'm ready thinking, when it happens. You know. Uh, and I think we talked about this in another episode where we talked about the superstar effect. And how the yeah. the top like opera, opera singer singers, in the world yeah. made you know oodles and oodles of more money than the number two opera singer because when people want something they want the best something they're not going to fool around with you know evaluating one versus two versus three just to see maybe two is only you know one percent worse than one they just go to one yeah and it's not because they're just like really really self centered and think they deserve the best it's it saves time yeah. I don't have time to look at all the stuff. I just want no. the best thing because it's easy, and I assume it will work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that's kind of like how hiring works too. Like yeah. Once you've identified the best one, you're just like, I'm going with the best one. You know, you don't you don't waste time on number two. Uh, so this is kind of like the essentialism portion of the book, I think. This whole argument of you need to be the best in the world, and if you want to be the best in the world, then you need to quit the other things you're doing. Yeah, and there's even a – I think there's a point where he's like the, the people who get success are the ones who obsess. Yeah. The, the ones who live and breathe what they're attempting to be good at. And I got to tell you, I, I struggle with this because I read ideas like this and then I start thinking like, okay, what am I not obsessing about? What am I doing too much of that isn't the thing I can be the best in the world at? And uh, – I'll write out a list. Yeah, <laughs> I think you could probably you could probably identify it. Well, one thing I was thinking about is um, like I'm designing the new website design, and I probably shouldn't be doing that because I cannot be the best study YouTuber in the world and the best podcaster in this niche, and also a great UX designer, and also a great author, and also a speaker that travels. Like you can't do all those things. Yeah, it's really freaking tough. To and come yet to terms you're going with to that. New York next week. I know. But Look, this, this I'm is not the thing. Perfect. It's not easy. It is not it's, easy to yeah. just say, all right, all right, I've decided everything I've ever been interested in, in the trash. We're done now. Yeah. Goodbye, hobbies. 
It's, it's really tough because you look at other people. So like maybe Seth Godin is an author and that's like all he does. But then you look at some other people who seem to be able to run a podcast and a YouTube show and speak on stage. Like somebody like Gary Vaynerchuk or Casey Neistat I look at and they're able to do all these things at such a high level and maintain them all. Well, and I don't know. It just like we puts don't, me We don't a, know what potential they're not potentially reaching. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like I guess if Casey Neistat didn't go – do all the stuff with other companies and didn't go accept all the awards and do speeches, he probably could make even better films. Yeah. I mean, any, but. any amount of time you put towards something is not going toward the other things. It's not like, yeah. Like if Mozart was all like, yeah, piano's cool. I like, I like play when I get home from work on Fridays, then we would not know the name <laughs> Mozart. It would mean nothing. That's true. I think, so one thing I was thinking about here when it comes to best in the world is, um, what if we strategically quit the specific schedule we're on? So, so what do you mean by the schedule? Like so, a, like, like I constantly, yeah. Like, well, I constantly go back and forth between I should publish videos every two weeks so I can put a lot more time into them, or oh, that kind of a thing. I should publish two videos a week because it's always every time that I, my mind goes to the two videos a week or one video a week, it's always business reasons because. At my core, I like to put a lot of time into the research and the editing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And for the past month, I haven't even had an editor, so I've been editing everything myself. And it's just, I don't know, it's its very unsatisfying knowing that I can't put as much time into the editing and into the research as I want to because of the dictates of a schedule. Yeah. So maybe that's part of it. Well, like strategically quitting doesn't mean you have to quit all the things you're doing, you could just not do them as often. Yeah, you may need to quit your perception of what you're required to do for those things. Because yeah. because also, like, you don't need to quit all your hobbies and stuff and, and devote yourself 100% to one thing. Mm-hmm. We're not becoming the monks of podcasting where this is our life and nothing else can be our life. Only podcasting. But, like, the, the way I've been doing it and the only way I've been able to handle all my hobbies is by saying, this is my hobby for now. This is mm-hmm. my project for now. And once I finish this goal and that project... I get to pick a new one for my other hobbies. So, like, you can be good at different things serially. Yeah. One at a time, get really good at it as much as you want, and then move on. So then balancing that on the side of the main thing that supports you seems to work. But you can't do everything at once, no matter how much you like all of the things. I think you are way better than me at this. I do like simplicity. (laughs) And you inherently don't like simplicity no, as I much don't. as me. So I like complexity. I, because I get two bonuses. When I simplify my life, I get the bonus that I got from the actual simplification. And I get the like pleasant feeling of knowing I've just made things a little simpler. And I like that. I get like two <laughs> benefits. I win every time. I, I don't know if I get that feeling. Yeah. I well, get, I, I get a rush can. from, from automating be. something. But it's usually not like... Oh, I don't have to do this anymore. It's oh, more I had fun automating the thing. Okay, what's the next thing I can automate? Yeah, to well, me, better... having to automate something <laughs> means that there may, in fact, just be another thing I shouldn't even have in my life if I need to automate it. Yeah. My first instinct is to remove. I should probably try to work on that. So one thing I've been toying with is the idea of um, trying to force myself to do a video only using Premiere and not using After Effects. What does that mean for so um, other is, people who don't understand video stuff? Yeah, because I totally know what you. I want to do. I, want, I was going to explain it. So Premiere is the video editing program that I use, and it's for cutting footage. Uh, you can do some basic graphics in there. You can make text, and you can obviously put pictures in there and B-roll and everything. Okay. Um, After Effects is where you can do 
way, way more with motion graphics. So my workflow so like tends to be... the llama thing? The llama thing is done in After Effects. Okay. I could do it in Premiere. Um, and actually the way... I have actually changed it recently to the point where I think I could actually do it in Premiere without any any lowering of the quality of that particular little llama graphic. Okay. But I have noticed that when I learn a new technique, I tend to have this thing in the back of my head that says, okay, now you have to use that technique in every single video forever alongside all the other ones that you've learned. So every single time there's a new one added on, it's just like, oh, now there's this laundry list of techniques I feel that I need to use. And if I don't, it's like a failure of a video. Yeah, and it, it doesn't really, I don't think it takes a whole lot of thinking about that to realize that it's a pretty unsustainable pattern. It is It is very unsustainable. And I also think that it causes me to deprioritize the message. And I, mean, I try to fight against that and I try to make sure the message mm. is good. But sometimes my brain will be like, okay, just film it quickly because you need as much time in post as you can get. And I mean, it, it's kind of silly because I, I could see how that could the throw talking the part off. is at the heart of the yeah. video. So if you deprioritize that because you feel like you need to have, you know, a nice flickering vignette on your animation yeah, that you throw you're over You're like it. half baking the cake and then putting the best frosting in the world on top, which I'll still eat. It'll be fine. But because you like it, frosting? it defeats the point. <laughs> well, Wait, do you I'll, like the frosting better than the cake? It depends. A lot of cakes are bad. Mm. I got to say I like the cake way better. But you are right. A lot of cakes are bad. So take it or leave it. Um, but yeah, I might do that because a lot of the YouTubers I watch, they don't use After Effects at all. At all? Nope. Mm. And I would say that more okay. YouTubers don't even know how to use it than those who do. Uh, and I'm over here using it for like the majority of my editing, actually. Once I've got like the cuts made, I try to do almost everything in After Effects. It might actually be better for me to, to really narrow my focus and ask myself, okay, what can you do with this one program? Just like we did that one time with the summer video. What can you do with a video where you don't ever shoot in your studio? Yeah. And you're only on location. Yeah, that's you know? an interesting point. So it may not even be quitting an activity. You're just you're potentially thinking about quitting parts, subsets of that ca that yeah. uh, activity. And so that's something he talked about in the book, actually, where he talked about the difference between quitting a strategy and quitting a tactic. Oh, and yeah. mentioned how... Most people who are, say, overnight successes, quote unquote, or most companies like the ones in the Good to Great episode that we probably talked about, they didn't tend to stick with the exact same tactic forever because eventually tactics fail. But what they didn't quit was the market they were in because they knew markets are full of many, many, many people. And over time, those people start to learn about you. So if you don't gain momentum right away, the answer isn't to quit. The answer is to try to find a better tactic. Yeah, so don't quit your overarching goal. You're yeah. just maybe going about it wrong. And that that's interesting because half the time I have a problem I'm trying to solve, I realize that the only reason it seems like a problem is because I have a false assumption about how I'm required to solve mm -hmm. it. And it's just everything. I mean, even, even recently, a very simple example was like, I got this shower caddy thing that hangs on the top, you know, and it came with these two suction cups to attach it so that when you put on something heavy, it doesn't swing to the side. Yeah. The suction cups couldn't get close enough to the wall. And I was like, okay, oh. but if I'm going to use it how it's designed, how am I going to do that? And then later I realized, actually, if I just stick them on both sides, it can't rotate because it gets stuck between them. Oh, wait, you like not even attached? Yeah, they're to not it? even attached. They're oh. just on the wall blocking it in there. there so the go. only way to win was to 
delete the assumption that I need to use it how it was intended. Yeah. And that's it's you have to do that to solve anything. The way that I keep my shower caddy up there is I uh, I put it on the shower head and then I wrap a rubber band right around the shower head in front of it and then I electrical tape it all, and it works perfectly. Uh, yeah, because yeah, that's clearly not cups. how it's designed. You have to like yep do something different, and that's like that with all these solutions. If you want to have your goal yeah. done, you can't stay from one tactic forever. I was thinking about false base assumptions today uh, because I was reading an article about how schools because of Common Core, I guess, had cut recess time. I'm, I'm guessing like Common Core must mean that they have to have more time in class. So I guess there's this base assumption that more time in class equals better learning. Oh, yeah. Where they're not even thinking about the fact that if you take away recess, number one, you aren't giving kids exercise. And number two, there's a lot of research out there that shows that unstructured play actually helps learning. So you're taking away that and you're taking away the cognitive benefits of exercise because you've like you've totally made a base assumption that excludes that and you're just trying to find solutions in there. It's as if we had all woken up one day and decided that, okay, every single day we're going to take a knife and like cut our arm. Every morning, that's life. And what do we do to solve the pain of that? Well, you can put Band-Aids on it or you can use those liquid Band-Aids or you can take pain medication there's all these all these uh, solutions that are operating within the subset of this base assumption is what we're going to go with, and we're never going to challenge it. Yeah. Maybe we should just stop waking up in the morning and cutting our arms open. No, that's ridiculous. But it's exactly like that. We start with a false assumption, and then you, the problem is you get so stuck in there, or you've spent so much time trying mm-hmm. to solve it from that angle that you, you're resistant to saying, wait, maybe all this was wasted time, and that's not the problem at all. Yeah. Or here's a really good one. So... People who are watching the podcast or listening to the podcast and any podcast app have probably seen that our art changed. And for, I don't know, three or four years, the art of a podcast was me on the cover and then College Info Geek going down the side. And I was like, that's that's cool. And then we were going to change it. I was like, all right, Martin's face needs to be on the podcast because you're now just as much of a part of it as I am. It was kind of weird to not have you on it. Uh, and because I've been on Listen Money Matters for so many years, I, I, my brain was like stuck in this idea of how you do a square image with two people's faces and then like a logo and show name. Yeah. So I essentially recreated the Listen Money Matters podcast art, except for it was, you know, it was a darker, grayer background. It had College Info Geek and then it had us instead of me and Andrew. And then I kept it full color. So it was... It was different in every element except for the layout. But in my mind, like my mind kind of drifted to this idea of, oh, it would be kind of cool to have the layout be very similar to Listen Money Matters because I'm on both podcasts. So it's like this nice little consistency thing. I sent it to Andrew and he actually said, you need to change it. Because even though you're on this podcast, you want your brand to be differentiated from ours because it is still a different brand. Yeah. And... The mere fact that he wasn't into it and didn't like it destroyed that base assumption in my brain. And then I just instantly came up with a better way to do the layout. And I had to admit to myself, it wasn't just because I thought it would be cool to have consistent podcast art that I designed it that way. It was because my brain was stuck in a rut and couldn't think of a better way to do it. Yeah. And now the way that it looks, I actually like it better. 
but I didn't think about it before. I didn't think, oh, I could do a cool like gradient coming up from the bottom from, you know, going from dark to transparent to make the logo visible, but it's still like over our chests. Didn't think about that. So I think sometimes you have to challenge the base assumptions to figure out what it is that you need to quit or change. Yeah, just maybe you're going about it wrong. Maybe you're only failing a class because of your your uh, tactics mm-hmm. in learning them. Yeah, and I, I think this gets harder as you get older because you just you get into your routines and you do you're so the used same to solving thing. it one way. Yeah, you get and really it, good it at solving it one way for the most part. But you can then do it all the time. Exactly. So let's talk about the curves that yeah. uh, he explains in this I book. I think those are probably the things I'll remember the most yeah, in this book. These are the main ideas of the book, really. So the main idea of the book, and for anybody watching this on YouTube, I'll show the cover here, is this idea of the dip. Um, and anything worth doing has this dip-like curve that he talks about. So basically, you start, uh, you don't start in the dip whenever you're starting a new thing because it's fun and novel and it's exciting. And usually there's like the noob gains. Um, If you're a weightlifter, there are actually noob gains. You can add 50 pounds to your bench press in a few weeks if you have consistent training and you have a good program. But eventually you're going to hit a plateau or you're going to sustain an injury or let's say you're playing the guitar, you're going to get to a point where it's just not fun anymore or something's going to happen and it's going to make doing that thing suck. Yeah. So if you are doing something worth doing, which means it has somewhere that is better than where you are that you're working towards, it has a lot of potential, then you are in a dip-like curve. And it always sucks to be in the dip, but the people who push through the dip are the ones who succeed and are the ones who gain uh, the disproportionate rewards than, uh, than everyone else. And that's why you get that zip distribution because everyone who is in the number one spot in their field are people who have pushed through that dip and who have been able to do it better than anybody else. Yeah, and like scarcity comes into play because you've got one person that can be the best, Mm -hmm. and that's pretty scarce. Not many people get access to that, so they're more valuable. Yeah, I think one of the examples he gave in the book was Microsoft. They constantly worked to create Windows and then Excel and Word and PowerPoint, and they got to the point where they had created a dip that was so wide that nobody else would be able to eventually overtake them in office software. Yeah. But that's because they were the ones who pressed through. And then he also noted, and this is kind of the flip side, that the people on the other side of the dip usually work to make that dip harder because that's what keeps competition out. And obviously, you know, any... Yeah, you want to create a barrier of entry to your own field. Right. Companies benefit from competition on a macro scale, but... On a micro scale, when they're being strategic, they want to discourage competition as much as possible. I mean, I think in in the back of your head, you know that you get better when there's competition, but you don't want there to be competition. Yeah. Like, I don't think you would want your girlfriend to be like, there's this really cute guy I met today. Like, no. Well, no then you've got to try hard all the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You don't actually want that. So companies do all they can to widen the dip. He also talks about how... Um, a lot of uh, professional organizations or professional fields will create a dip, not as a way to try to keep out competition, but as a way to make sure that the people who get in are qualified. Like the weed out classes. Yeah, like organic chemistry is a great weed out class for pre-meds because if you can't handle organic chemistry, then you can't handle being a doctor. Yeah. So they set up like these screens. Same with uh, job interviews. And I think the job interview thing is it's not like us sitting here going, I'm going to make it as hard as possible 
to make sure people are serious. Uh, well, actually, you know what? Let me take that thought back. We actually did that. Yeah, we there, put, were, there were some extra we questions put, in there. Yeah, when we hired writers, we had that final question that was just, is there anything else you'd like to say or anything else that you could offer? And we were specifically looking for people who put effort into that answer. Even if they didn't have like a huge extra skill set, you know, if somebody was just a great writer, I think having, you know, I think that person is going to put more effort into that question than somebody else anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess you're right. We actually did build a little bit of a dip into the application process for the uh, writer that we wanted to hire. And I think other companies probably do that. But other things like, having a resume or a cover letter or doing interviews or flying out, you know, to a different city to interview. I wouldn't say that these things are deliberately set up barriers, but they are just realities of the funnel. Yeah. Because you can't do a Skype interview with a zillion different people. Uh, And if if you don't accept resumes, how are you going to know what kind of skills the candidates have? Yeah. It wouldn't be possible to give every single person an equal shot on yeah. on the planet. You have to filter them somehow. Yeah. So there, I guess there are just dips built into certain processes that are competitive. Even if they aren't deliberately set up as dips, they are dips. Yeah. And now about that Microsoft example, before we're too far away from that, mm-hmm. I actually really liked the part where like, obviously they've, they've created this dip. You can't basically beat them in office software that you install on your computer. But they were yeah. like, but what about Google Docs? They're doing a bunch of stuff, but they're doing it on the internet. They changed yeah. their context of best in the world to mm-hmm. the best online one because even Google didn't think it was worth it to try and fight Microsoft on installable Office stuff. Yes. Actually, so there's a there's a part near the end of the book um, that reminds me about this Google thing. It's where he talked about soft tires. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I really liked this. And I actually just I want to read it because it was it was pretty impactful for me. So he says, consider the bicycle tire. The first 10 pounds of pressure you put into a completely flat tire do no good at all. And adding an extra adding 10 extra pounds to a full tire will burst the tire, defeating the entire purpose of your effort. Nope, it's just the last 10 pounds, the ones that get you to full that really pay off. When it's down five or 10 pounds, it might as well be flat. A 10% change in pressure makes it defective. If it's up 5 or 10 pounds, though, the entire wheel is threatened with a blowout. Obviously, it's the pressure right around full that has the most impact. So this is where it gets into the practical uses of this. If you enter a market that's too big or too loud for the amount of resources you have available, your message is going to get lost. Your marketing disappears. Your message fails to spread. Think twice about launching a mass market brand of chewing gum. Like adding just a few pounds of air to a flat tire, launching a product into too big of a market has little effect. You can't create pressure and you never reach the dip. So I think this was a good example of what Google did. They realized trying to get into the desktop software market is a flat tire that we don't have enough air to put into. It's not worth the resources. Exactly. So let's try to find another market. Uh, There was another example of, I think, Sara Lee, the bread company, had this coffee pod brand they wanted to launch. And it just totally bombed in America because there's already Keurig and there's already uh, Nespresso and stuff like that. But in the Netherlands, which has a far smaller population... They, I think, have 40% of the market in the coffee pod areas. Yeah. So I think, you know, when you're looking at a potential new thing you want to get into and you're trying to gauge whether or not you're going to be successful uh, and you're trying to gauge whether or not going through the pain of the dip is worth it, this is very important to consider. Is there 
you know, a successful point that I can get to given the resources that I have. I don't think you and I right now can launch a space company to compete with SpaceX. No, that that would be dumb. That would be a terrible idea. Turns out that I know very little about rockets other than that they have rocket boosters, which I would love to put on rollerblades someday. And maybe that's the dip I should go through. Rocket blades. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably it. But But I can't make space Y or space Z or whatever. I don't have the resources for that. I wouldn't get to the dip, at least at this point in my life. No, and that's and it's not just like that kind of resource. It's like time, money, mm-hmm. your physical like stature. I think astronauts have requirements. I probably yes. can't be a great basketball player, and I'm not. I'm not that tall. And, Whoa, Allen uh, Iverson, man! A base level of talent in some things because you can't just blindly say, "No, I'm going to do it." This book is basically saying you only want to embrace the dip and you only want to take on these big challenges that you feasibly can win. Because yeah. if you can't feasibly win then you're just putting in a bunch of effort to lose. Now, one question I have for you on this note is how do you differentiate between something that you literally can't win and something that you probably could win, but at the at the level you're at right now, it seems impossible. So for example, we are about to hit 1 million subscribers on the YouTube channel. That is a number. I felt that, that was impossible when I was a sophomore in college. Well, I don't think that that would have been a good idea to be your first goal. I think if you had okay. set if you had set that in the beginning as your only way of feeling successful, that may have been bad because one of your resources is your psychological strength to power through. And mm. if you had known, you don't know that that goal might happen in like seven years. Yeah. Right. So if that's your original definition of winning, then you're probably going to feel terrible and quit because you're demotivated because you can't reach it fast enough. And that's, okay. that's one of the things in here. He's got uh, seven reasons that you might fail to become the best in the world at something. Okay. And so you can either run out of time, you run out of money, or you get scared. That that would be this one because you're like, it's way too big. Yeah. Uh, you're not that serious about it. You lose interest or enthusiasm or you settle for mediocrity. Like any of these might happen because you started too big of a goal. So I think that what you would want to do is if you can cut it down to a measurable thing, that you can succeed at now, maybe it's worth doing. Okay. If it's not relatively short term, then I I think maybe that's the kind of vision you keep in the back of your head, but yeah. you shouldn't let it consume you. That makes sense. If you can't make measurable progress toward it. So if if I did want to form my own space exploration company, maybe it's not the case that I should just totally give up on that dream forever. But there's got to be some intermediary thing that I have to prove to myself that I could do first. Yeah, like stepping stone dreams. And also, yeah. if you don't care about a lot of the stepping stone dreams on the way there, then maybe you don't actually care about the content of the later dreams. That's true. Maybe it's just the status that you're you after. Know, because we talked about our friend uh, who changed his major because he didn't like – he didn't really care so much about engineering. He liked the image of this fancy computer hacker like the guy from The Matrix. Yep. But all the middle parts – weren't that interesting. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to spend his time hacking around on computers and doing all this nonsense. Yeah. So if you're not actually that interested in the middle steps, or you're not that good at the middle steps, or you don't have the resources to reach the middle steps, then it, I think it's probably a pretty safe bet that you can't do the bigger steps. Yeah, that makes sense. So maybe keep the bigger steps in the back of your mind, but then define the middle the, steps. Yeah, they should be motivating, but they as, shouldn't be your goal. Yeah. It shouldn't be like, this year, I'm going to start a new SpaceX. That's a terrible New Year's resolution. That's not going to work. 
Nine out of ten people who try to start a new SpaceX fail. Yeah, they don't succeed. <laughs> Turns Nine out. out of ten. Okay, so we talked about the dip. And, I mean, there is going to be more about the dip because it's the title of the book. There are two other curves, though. So I'm going to start with the third curve first because there's less to say about this one. The third curve is the cliff. Yeah. And the cliff is something that continually gets better and better and better until a sudden drop-off. And the example here he gives is uh, smoking. Yeah. You know, smoking, I guess, I, I'm not a smoker, and I yeah, hope neither. that most people listening to this aren't, but um, for those of people out there who are, it becomes more and more addicting, that's for sure. The one thing that I wondered about when he talked about this is, like, does smoking actually become more pleasurable over time? I don't know. I guess... I guess if you look at it from the perspective of it becomes more and more necessary for you to feel normal. So from from that perspective, it could be like a steady yeah, trend upward in a certain way. Uh, but there are very few things that he points out here. There are very few things in life that have this steady uptrend that are actually worth doing. Usually it's pretty bad things because there's eventually a drop off in the yeah, case maybe, of smoking. Maybe it's you're called a bank emphysema. robber. Yeah. You know, you're a really good bank robber and you keep making more and more money, but you know that at some point there is a point it, it all crashes and nah, it was never nah, worth man. it. We're just going to pull one last job. Yeah. And we're going to be able yeah, to just retire to the one. Bahamas and I'm going to be out of the game forever. Just one last job. Come on, man. Yeah, if it seems I like it's going to get better and better and better, but you know that at some mystery point it's going to fall apart, then yeah. it's, it's not that great of a curve. So that's Don't that's do it. that's the cliff. And then there's the cul-de-sac. Uh, which is basically any kind of like dead end pursuit where you can see that you're just kind of going to be where you are forever. It's never going to get better. Yeah. And this is a lot of jobs. It is a lot of jobs. If you're the number one cash register operator on the planet, you probably still make the same amount of money as the person next to you who's on their phone. Yes. I, I, I don't think you get a, you probably leave that job. That's your reward for being the best person at that job. Yeah, exactly. And like if I don't know, if you're playing a, a video game, if you put like 500 hours into WoW, it's probably not going to get any better. So unless like you are having a ton of fun. Yeah. You know, you should probably quit that because it's cul-de-sac. Uh, and so I want to tell a story about my girlfriend, actually. Um, so my girlfriend has been at this full time job for nearly a year. And she's going to be leaving it um, because she wants to pursue her own art. And she was afraid to leave it, part one, because money concerns and things like that. But part two, people are just afraid to leave jobs because it's like it feels secure. It feels like the right thing you should be doing. But she would tell me, like, the work that I'm doing here isn't really making me a better artist. I'm just doing work that gets me money. And usually it's the same level of difficulty, which is usually well below my capabilities, but we're on a time crunch because of the client work. So I can't really, you know, I can't spend a ton of time trying out a new technique or really pushing myself. So we talked about it and she decided to quit because she wants to have more time to really push herself to do better art. And, um, you know, I'll put her Instagram link actually in the show notes for this episode. She has improved her artistic ability by a ridiculous margin since making the decision. Like It's been crazy. Just in a very short amount of time. Yeah. She has never really done line art before. And I actually asked her in the past because I would go to cons with her and stuff and I'd see some of the other artists running artist booths. And I really like Anna's art style, but she used a, a pretty flat art style. 
And the thing about like flat art, at least in my mind, is that a lot of times if you're not using a lot of crazy gradients, it's not very complex. Yeah. So there's a part of me that's like, okay, that's from one from one perspective, it is artistically cool, but from another perspective, it is technically simpler than doing complex line art with shading and light sources and things like that. Well, you you might hit a ceiling on your yeah. ability to be skilled at that. Sooner. And I could be wrong. You know, somebody might send me a flat artist who uses no line art whatsoever. That's like mind blowing. It's potential, but I would just, I just asked like, do you ever intend to do line art? And I think part of it was just like, I don't feel like I can. Well, now she's got like this ridiculous motivation because now she's, she's got one, a goal because she wants to sell art at cons and two, she now has time. And in the past, I don't know, like week she's done three or four, like really good pieces of line art. Uh, seemingly overnight, she has taught herself how to simulate lighting in her art and illustrations in a way that I've never seen her do before. Like complex lighting that actually makes the faces look three-dimensional and things like that. It's crazy. Nice. Uh, so I think like her job represented a cul-de-sac, you know, and that doesn't mean it's like a bad thing. It's not like her coworkers are bad or the work was bad. It was comfortable and it was, you know, it was a good job. But if you have a goal to be the best in your world at something, then a job like that or anything where you're never going to really gain the opportunity to level up is a cul-de-sac. Yeah. And he basically in the book here, it's it's basically saying quit all of your cul-de-sacs as soon as you can. Yeah. And as soon as you can is pretty important because not everybody yes. can. So if you're stuck in a job like that and you you have to pay your bills, you know, you got to pay bills. I got to pay bills. It's life. Yeah. Then this just means that you should know that your goal is to progress your other passions or whatever you're doing to the point that you can quit that cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. Upon which when you do it, you will suddenly have more time and ramp up your other stuff. Yeah. And I, I really wanted to hit on this in the podcast a while ago, I tweeted something about how I think that people should work for free. I don't think companies should seek out people to work for free. I think that is unethical. Yeah. But within the system we live in, if you are unknown and you're a beginner, you don't have a ton of connections and you don't have a ton of work under your belt, then your competitive advantage is your willingness to go out and find people and offer your services for free. Because if you offer your services for free, you are not costing them anything other than the attention they have to give to you. So I think that's really, really useful. Yeah. Um, I remember last year, Anna asked me, why the heck are you paying for your own flight and your own hotel room to go to Menfluential, even though you're going to be on a panel? And I was like, I'm, I'm putting in my dues. I'm going there to make connections. I'm going there to uh, tell people about my work, to show that I'm a good speaker, and at least in my mind, yes, I'm not being paid for this. And I know that I'm technically benefiting that conference by being on the panel, but I am using my competitive advantage. They aren't going to offer to pay me to speak. And then this year, not only do I have a much better relationship with people who founded that conference, but they had me come out, they paid for my hotel, they paid for my flight and I spoke at it. And then the audience was, you know, they really liked the speech and now I've got a bunch of new connections. So there's a great example of working for free. Yeah. Uh, what I want to mention here, because I got some tweet responses from people saying like, okay, yes, but not everybody can work for free. They have bills to pay, which is true. But it's, you know, there's something else that's just as true. And that's that some people out there in the world have to work 18 hours a day and have literally no free time. 
So, I mean, if you're at home tweeting that some people can't work for free, they can't afford it. Well, that's true. But maybe you have time to play video games at the end of the day. Maybe you have time for one hour of Netflix because you have gained a small surplus. Some people in the world do not have that surplus. You've gained a small surplus. So the goal here, if you don't currently have the ability to work for free, or in this case, to get out of your cul-de-sac, to get into something that is a true dip with a payoff at the end, your first task is to gain a surplus of time or resources. Once you gain a surplus of resources, whether it be time or money or energy or whatever it is, you can devote that to getting out of a cul-de-sac or getting into a dip. Yeah. But if you can't, that's just the reality of life. Like that is your mission right now. Gain a surplus. I mean, when I was in college, I barely had any money. I couldn't invest in things. And even now I don't have the amount of money that somebody like Elon Musk has. I couldn't invest in a space company. I don't have that kind of a surplus. So you can't tell me, man, you're just making this podcast on the internet. You're never going to get us to Mars. You're never going to uh, you know, uh, contribute to the human race existing beyond the uh, habit, habit, I can't say the word habitability of this planet. What are you even doing with your life, man? I don't have the surplus for that. Yeah. Maybe someday I will have the surplus. And at that point I can take on a new dip with those, with those resources. That dip requires a different set of resources than my dip. Yeah. So that's the whole, that's the whole mission here. Yeah. And I think that basically this point of the book and the things to do with a dip are really important, but you can't, and some of them, it says, don't start it. Sometimes yeah. you don't start the dip. And I liked his the example whole of thing. snowboarding. Yeah. You, yeah. Most people don't have time to get really good at snowboarding, but, though. I would say that snowboarding is fun. So, well, even see, if you don't I, want to be Sean I think White, that that's also an important part of this is that you shouldn't take this so literally that you cut out every fun thing in your life. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely one of those motivational books that's like trying to get you out of that rut in your life so you can do something really worthwhile. But I don't think that he means quit your relationship and quit playing video games if you enjoy video games and never go to a movie again. Not a dip. When's it? It's not going to pay off. You're not going to be the best in the world at rocket science with your relationship. Get out of there. I think he does talk about relationships as well, though, because a relationship can be a dip or a cul-de-sac. Well, that's true. You know, are you with a toxic person and everything you try is not working and not improving the relationship at all? You're probably in a cul-de-sac. Some people out there are not going to improve. They're not going to change. And if the way that they are doesn't work for your needs, then that's a cul-de-sac of a relationship, you know, or maybe it's a cliff and they're planning to murder you. Maybe (laughs) it'll get better and better and better until suddenly it doesn't. I know, right? Uh, he talked about the questions to ask, actually, before quitting. Yeah. So this might be something good to mention here. And I think this applies to a relationship. It also applies to a job or a business venture that you're doing, or maybe even a class. So the first question is, am I panicking right now? Because usually when you make the decision to quit while you're panicking, it is a short-term focused decision. And it's all about getting rid of the pain that you're going through right now, not a long-term strategic decision based on is this pain at the dip right now worth whatever's coming at the end or I'm on a cul-de-sac and this is not going to get any better. Yeah, because we're, so, we're stuck in pain in the present, unfortunately. Yeah. That's the one time we're really good at being present-minded. It's very true, yeah. So he, he talks about like the best way to quit is to plan ahead, plan to quit. And the second one is who am I trying to influence right now? So... I think this could, uh, why am I, why am I brain farting on the word? Apply, 
Okay. I was going to say reply. <laughs> I think this is going to apply to relationships, but it's also um, more focused, I think, on jobs and entrepreneurship here. If you're trying to influence one person, then you're basically standing at the base of a wall. Persistence works a little bit in some cases, but in a lot of cases, once you've asked somebody so many times to change or to buy your product or to hire you and they've said no, a lot of times that door is closed. Yeah. But if you are trying to influence a market, whether it be all of the companies that operate in the field that you want to get into, or whether it be a market of people out there listening to podcasts for students, then that's a little bit different. That's more like climbing a hill because you have many different people out there. So maybe some people say, no, this isn't for me, but you're not trying to get only those people. You're trying to get anybody who's interested in that thing. Yeah. So at that point, you know, you're working and you're making th your stuff better. And every single day people can discover you and they're just, they're going to discover a better version of you. So interestingly, this question is kind of, is the scope of my world I'm being the best in too small? Yeah. Am I going to be the best at the world at selling vacuums to Thomas Frank? That's what I want to do. But then maybe that maybe that scope is really dumb. I think the only best in the world person and or company in that area is Target. Yeah. Because if I need a new vacuum, I'm going to go to Target and I'm going uh, yeah, to buy the, one. The scope of your world <laughs> is maybe too small. <laughs> so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Who are you trying to influence? And I did like how in the book he, he mentioned that, you know, overnight quote unquote successes like Stephen King or J.K. Rowling or anybody like that, they usually succeed across their market. They usually don't succeed by executing the exact same tactic over and over and over again, trying to target the exact same person. Yeah, they go to exact... different publishers to yeah. get their book published. They don't just keep pounding the same. The exactly. Same My friend Jenny Blake had her, her draft uh, for what was the book called for Pivot. I think it was rejected 27 times by 27 different publishers and then one accepted it and it was a pretty big publisher. So again, that is an across the market kind of thing. Had she been knocking on their door every single day, they probably would have called the cops on her or something. Yeah. Uh, and then the last question here was, what sort of measurable progress am I making? And this is the whole idea of, am I in a dip or am I in a cul-de-sac? Am I moving forward right now or am I standing still? You know, and a lot of people who are standing still kind of just decide to cope with that and they're just okay with standing still. Yeah. But that's when it's time to quit. If you really want to be good at something or you really want to have a relationship that is worth having, that you feel really close to that person, you know, if, if you're in a relationship where there is no progress being made and you're making efforts, you're actually putting in effort and you're dealing with the pain, that might be a cul-de-sac. And Same all of with that the job. effort could go to something with a dip. Exactly. I had one more thing that I wanted to talk about here. So when I talked about the dip before I had read this book and when I thought about it, I found it very easy for my brain to get into this, this thought pattern of, okay, the dip is going to happen, but I would sort of remove myself from it and then just make, make this assumption like I'm going to be in it for a while and then I'm going to come out of it. And it's almost like this passive train rider kind of thing. Um, and that's actually not a very good way to think about it. So I wanted to have, or I wanted to read one more quote from the book here. So the section was titled, the opposite of quitting isn't waiting around. Now the opposite of quitting is rededication. The opposite of quitting is an invigorated new strategy designed to break the problem apart. So here's the part I really liked. It's a mistake to view the dip as static, to imagine that you are merely a passive passenger on a slow moving boat 
ride, <laughs> sitting there as you move through the doldrums of the dip. The dip is flexible. It responds to the effort you put into it. In fact, it's quite likely in almost every case that aggressive action on your part can make the dip a lot worse or a lot better. Let's try for better. Yeah, I like that it points out you could also make the problem worse. So yeah. please pay attention. Yeah, it's true. So I think you have to be strategic and you have to ask like what what effort that I'm putting in is actually well, creating Actually, a good example good I results. think of making it worse would be if you're like, I'm not getting the grades I need in this subject. So I'm going to just 24-7, I'm studying. Yeah. Obviously, you're putting in a lot of effort in the dip, but that's going to mess up your grades even worse. Exactly. Yeah, it turns out lack of sleep and no sunlight. Yeah, and that's never a poor, eating. it was poorly thought out strategy. Yeah. Or, you know, in a more realistic strategy, someone like me thinking, oh, that video didn't do well. The next one, I need to do more animations and more polish on the little things that only I notice. You know, and I am very guilty of that, where you kind of focus in on the wrong things. Maybe it's because they, they're more tactical or they're more, they're more bound in rules. They're, you can grab onto them a little better than, you know, what's a compelling message or what's a compelling story. Those things are hard and they're kind of like smoky yeah. and hard to, to latch onto. But, oh, this had a, a better, smoother transition from this scene to this scene. I can quantify that. You know, I can, I can see that, oh, there's a number there that's better or there's a curve there that's more elegant. That's easier to do. But... Does it actually lead to results given my goal? That's the question you got to answer. Yeah. Well, in, in that case, it's it's really interesting because you're just jumping from the dip that is working through the hard part of that singular project mm -hmm. into something that's less challenging. And th that's a very dangerous thing to do, that fake productivity that you get when you're just like, I'm going to do five seconds of each of these things, and now I feel like I've done ten things today, but none of yeah. them really mattered. You feel good, so that's the tricky part. Mm-hmm. So get clear on what it is you want and then ask yourself, what are the efforts that I am putting in or could be putting in that are actually creating results? And assuming the thing you're doing is a dip, then focus on those things. Yeah. And if it is not a dip, then try to get out as fast as possible, and create that surplus. Cool. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to cover here? Because I actually went through pretty much all of my outline here. I think that, you know, pretty much pretty much good, although there was one part of the book that I liked that I think might resonate a lot with students. Okay. And it was the part where uh, he said, a lot of things you're taught in school are wrong, but one of the biggest is that being well-rounded is the secret to success. Mm. Because if you're the kid who's got an A and all Bs, you know, you feel pretty good. And then maybe the kid with one A and then all Cs and Ds feels pretty bad. Yeah. But in reality, after school, that person may in fact just be really specialized mm -hmm. and they may actually end up doing much better because they specialized in one thing and did a really good job at it. Yeah. Because nobody asks their doctor tips to play Crash Bandicoot really well. You know, I don't expect I do. that from them. <laughs> I mean, maybe I want to ask them because that's a fun question that I just thought of. But that's not their skill set. It doesn't matter if they're terrible at literally everything else that I am yeah. not asking them to do. Yeah, they just need to be good at that one so thing. So being well-rounded seems great, and it's good mm -hmm. if you like the things you're being well-rounded in, but it's not what makes a person the most successful at, yeah. like, anything. I've always been very enamored with the idea of being well-rounded and being that renaissance man. Well, you feel like you're missing and out on so many things you don't if you don't do that. Yeah, and well, to a degree, I still think it is valuable. Like, I value being able to cook and also knowing how to lift weights properly and yeah, you know, but a lot of things. But in, I think in your career, that's when it gets dangerous because you get like me and you start thinking that you can be a world class web designer 
and YouTuber and writer and all these things, and you can't. Yeah, I think it works you know? best for careers and projects. Please do learn to cook and exercise. And, like, you yeah. can't take any of the things in any of these books quite literally. Yes. You have to you have to frame it in your own context. Maybe that's the title of my book. You can't take it literally. <laughs> Don't take this literally. <laughs> Purity is Thomas the enemy. Frank. <laughs> there you go. That's actually not a bad not title bad. for a book or, like, a, a comedy special. Yeah. Be a good comedy special title. You know, either or. <laughs> cool. Uh, I think we ended up talking about the book longer than the book took to read yeah it's not that Oops. long of a book so if uh, you're interested go ahead and read it yeah you know? yeah it'll take you less time to read this book than it took you to listen to this episode sorry uh, <laughs> but hey look at it as like an extra long primer on the book now you're going to learn it 10 times better yeah maybe. and these things even if you know a lot of what they say I always like reading these even if I know what they're saying because I come out of it re-questioning what I'm doing with my life and I think yeah no matter how good you are at what you're doing it's a good thing to sit back and say wait a second how is everything going I haven't thought about it in a while so go ahead and read the book if you want mm-hmm. you know, it's cool well there's the whole idea of uh, you know you have to a customer has to be exposed to something seven times before they'll buy an advertising yeah. You know, I think that I need to be exposed to a certain idea many, many times before I'll actually take it seriously. And maybe the first time I read it, I wasn't in the frame of mind or I wasn't at the right point in my life to be able to use it. And then I'll come back to it later. And because it's repeated exposure, I may be more receptive. And it may be a time where being receptive to it is more beneficial. Yeah. Cool. Well, guys, this is episode 202. So if you are listening to this, cigpodcast.com slash 202 is the URL you'll want to go to if you want to find the show notes where we will link to this book. I took the cover off of it, so (laughs) I can't really, I'm not really demonstrating much here. It's a blank white book. (laughs) It it turns out that it is a blank white book if you take the book jacket off of it. Uh, This book, there you go. And if you're on YouTube, the link will be in the description down below as always. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If you want to support this podcast, uh, you can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's always a great way to do it or share it with a friend, put it on Twitter, make some smoke signals that spell our name out, all those kind of things. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who reads smoke signals these days. It's pretty niche. I don't know. I, I barely read anything. Probably works in the mountains though. Or maybe one of those like French flag systems that predated the Morse code. I don't even know about that. It's pretty cool. If you read The Victorian Internet by Tom Standage, you will learn about it. Okay. It's a pretty cool system. It was what they used to communicate over long distances before they invented the telegraph because you just need somebody at an outpost who can see the flags. Huh. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. All right. The more you know. I know. College History Geek. It's our next podcast. I wouldn't mind doing that if I had time. But I got some dips that I got to focus on. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, collegeinfogeek.com slash resources if you want to find our favorite books and apps and our college packing list and all kinds of other cool stuff otherwise we will see you in next week's episode stay cute